with everybody today. Um, about a decade ago, Gallup, everybody's familiar with Gallup, conducted this uh, research poll, um, and, and what they wanted to find out is what amount, specifically, got a little bit of echo, what amount does the, the average American consider to be defined as rich? Right? And so they asked people, there was a couple questions on this poll, but one of the questions they asked was just flat out, like for you in whatever circumstance you are, like give us, give us a dollar amount of like if you had this much money, you would consider yourselves to be rich, right? Versus, I don't know, middle class or poor or destitute, whatever the, the categories that you want to have are. But whatever rich means to you, what would be the amount? And in your head, don't shout it out right now because we'll know a lot about you that we might not you might not want us to know, but in your head, think about what would that number be to you? For you to say, I am rich, like actually rich. And don't say, I'm rich because I have friends. Like, think money, right? What, what would the amount be in your own head? A million, five million, ten million, two million, thirty thousand dollars? Like, whatever, whatever is that amount for you? And one of the things they found that was really interesting is that kind of answers across the board, you know, some people said five million dollars, some people said a hundred thousand um, dollars, but what was kind of often true, more than not, is that the amount tended to be about twice as much as the person asked the question actually had as a net worth, right? So if, you, if, they, had, if they looked at their bank accounts or their annual income or whatever, and they had like $100,000 in the bank account and their savings and their retirement, they thought like $200,000 would be a lot of money. If they were you know, a multimillionaire, they might say $50 million would be a lot of money. Whatever, whatever they're kind of, and it's not always the case, it's not perfect, but overwhelmingly a lot of people, that's the answer that they gave. And I, I think that's, that's fascinating because that means that there are people that thought $30,000 net worth was a lot of money. Like it was insane if you had that much money to, to your name. And there were other people who could have a million dollars and think they're poor, right? And so we learn a couple things. First, this, wealth is really a relative term, right? When we say someone's wealthy, we have to understand that that is tremendously relative and means totally different things to even most of the people in this room. Right? We would get, I would love to conduct that poll here, like anonymously, and just see what answers we would get. It's free across the spectrum, right? There, there are people in this room for whom I am wealthy. There are people in this room for whom I am, they wonder how I get by, right? That's just kind of how the world works. The second is this, no matter who we are, no matter who you are, we never think that we have enough money. Right? You always think you need more than what you have, for the most part, broadly speaking, as Americans and as global citizens. And then this one is this money and giving. Right? This is another thing, as they were asked in this poll, is that the reluctancy of the answers revealed that money and giving of money and owning of money and how we do things with our money is something we really, really don't like to talk about. Who here loves to talk about money? Yeah, no one. I didn't think so. As a matter of fact, one of the, in all the years of ministry, one of the, the favorite quotes that I've ever stumbled across is from like more than, more than seven, eight years ago. Um, it's by a guy named Andy Stanley. And to this day, it just sticks with me. This is one of my favorite quotes about giving, so I put it up for you. Um, what percentage should I give? I tell people start with 10% because the Bible writers have a lot to say about the tithe, which means 10th. For some people, that's extremely uncomfortable. But so is a colonoscopy, and those save countless lives. <laughs> Suffice it to say, there are many of us in this room, sometimes myself included, who would actually rather have a colonoscopy than talk about money and giving and all those kinds of things, right? 
Amen? Amen. Now, uh, in premarital counseling, I use this, this tool called SIMBIS. It stands for Saving Your Marriage Before It Starts. It's a great book. If you haven't read it, even if you've been married for 20 years, read it. It'll, it'll change your life. But it's an assessment that I have. the couples do on their own, like each, each you know, half of the couple does it without talking to the other, and they answer questions about family background, history, how things were in your house, you know, how you think about things like money and chores and career and children and all that kind of stuff. And, and you put them together afterwards, and it kind of is a great couple-week-long discussion starter. So the first four or five times I meet with a, a couple for pre-marriage counseling, we just go over that before we get into any books or anything. And it's like, a, okay, you, your house went this way, her house went this way, how do you merge those, right? And one of the big sections, one of the major sections is finances. And, and, and what they tell you is that the number one, one of the number one reasons for divorce in couples is some kind of disagreement or issue or lack of communication, that's the big one, about finances, right? It's, it's sex and money are the two big reasons why divorce happens predominantly, right? And so what we learn early on in marriage conversations is if you want to have a marriage that's successful and happy and healthy, the two of you have to learn to talk about money with each other, right? You have to have an openness and an honesty about how money is spent, how it comes in, what your goals for the future are, how you want to think about these things, what you want to do with it together. Like, you have to be on the same page. And the more communicative you are about your own family money and spending and saving and all those things, the, the more likely it is that you will have a happy marriage, right? And so that's, that's a principle that we, we easily kind of accept in our married and family lives, but we have a hard time accepting it when we get into our church life, right? In Scripture, Jesus spends roughly 15% of all of his teaching talking in some way, shape, or form about money, finances, giving, treasure and all those kinds of things. It's not always overt. Not, not all 15% of that is him telling you what to do with money or how to give or all those kinds of things. But 15% of all of his teaching relates somehow to the idea of finances and giving and stewardship, right? There's debates about how many of his parables. There's some people who would say Jesus talks about money more than anything else. That's a lie. He doesn't. Uh, if you study your Bible for three seconds, you'll figure out that that's not the truth, right? But he, he does talk an awful lot about money and so it's worth looking at what Jesus says and applying it to ourselves and thinking, man, if, if the Lord talks about giving and money so often, we probably ought to devote a little bit of time to it, right? And so we as a church family, over the next three weeks, are going to talk about money. We're going to have a family conversation about money. Now, before, I always like to look out. Usually there's at least one person who pretends to go to the bathroom and then I see them walk out into the parking lot, <laughs> right? So I want to encourage you, number one, don't find an excuse to sneak out. And number two, please, like, next Sunday is not your skip it Sunday, right? Like, you would think, oh, man, this is great. He told us what the next two weeks are going to be. I'm going to come back at the end of January, just in time for that congregational meeting. And I can just avoid all this because I've heard it a million times. I want to make you a couple promises because when we talk about giving as a church, a lot of times, more often than not, the church tends to butcher the daylights out of it. They do a really poor job. It goes one of two ways. Number one, it focuses on pledging and what you should give and how whatever it is that you give isn't enough. And if you're, you know, 6%, you're not really a Christian and, and all these kinds of things. It gets really into the legalistic nitty-gritty of, man, like up the ante or do you, do you really love God, right? And so you walk out of those feeling like guilty and weighed down. 
I'm terrible about your financial picture. And, and, and no one walks out of those feeling in any way encouraged or good or, or taught or shaped. Right? Or they shy so far away from asking that it, like once a year you hear the pastor get up and go, you know, there's the parable of the talents, but, but don't feel like you need to like do anything with that. It's just kind of like, just, just read it, you know, do, do whatever you... Whatever you've decided in your heart to, you know, there's the mousy kind of approach to finances. And neither one of those are helpful. And so I want to make you a couple promises, if you stick with me for the next three weeks, about what will and won't happen in this room as a family of God together. Number one, these sermons are not written, hear me clearly, with any specific person or persons in mind. That's a rule for my preaching always. I never, ever write a sermon thinking about somebody in the church. Oh, someone needs to hear about you know, taming the tongue, so I'm going to preach about James and look at them the whole time, right? That's never how it is. So here's the thing. If I make eye contact with you at any point during giving sermons, it's probably just because you happen to look really dapper that morning and I'm just checking you out, okay? <laughs> right? So don't feel like somehow it's, it's aimed at you, it's not. None of this stuff is written. This is biblical principles that apply to all of us equally. Whether you've never given a dime into the church or you've been given faithfully for years, just, just hear what God says on its merit and know that it isn't about you. And how you know it's not about you is another thing, in case you wanted to know. I do not know what a single individual in this church gives. And I don't want to know. We work really hard, actually, to make sure most of our elders don't know either. The only, there's only one elder that knows, and it's because the, somebody has to actually count the money that comes in and take it to the bank. And so, But we limit very severely, and those people are really good at keeping quiet and not talking unless it's in abstractions. So what I know is I know that there are certain amounts of people who give this much or more, or certain amount of people who give less than this, or certain amount of people who never give. I know those kinds of stats, but I don't actually know about your giving. Right? So if you think, wow, he must be talking to me. He knows that I haven't put an offering. I have no idea. No idea whatsoever. Okay? So it's not aimed at you, number one. Number two, this series is not meant to guilt you. If you walk out of here feeling guilty and awful, you've heard it wrong. This isn't meant to make you feel guilty about yourself. This is not a, number three, a legalistic series. Believe it or not, giving and generosity and a generous life has absolutely very little to do with how much you actually give. It really does. Very, very little. So it's not legalistic. And number four, this series might very well convict you, but don't mistake guilt for conviction. Right? The Holy Spirit convicts us in order to spur us and shape us towards life change. It's not meant to make us feel awful. It's meant to shape us so that we can continue to feel better as we grow more and more into likeness. So there's a big difference between conviction and guilt. Conviction is what we're probably going to experience over the next couple of weeks. Guilt has no place in this room, okay? Number five, my office is always open to have personal conversations about this. If this is something that you want to talk more about, or if I say something that you go, what the heck, that's just in there, come on in. Uh, we, we, every Tuesday, you can come and have donuts with me. Um, you can make an appointment, come in any other time, and just come and chat. I'd love to talk to you personally and individually. If you have some questions about your own situation and you want to kind of know what the Lord might say about it, happy to do so. Love to do that. And by the way, I'm legally bound pastoral confidence. I won't actually talk to anybody else about what you and I talk about. So I encourage you to do that. All right, number six, we will stay true to God's word, and you will get honest biblical examination and look at our call to generosity. 
This isn't a sermon that is preached so that we can up our budget next year. It's not about that. We'll get to that in a second. It's about understanding how God calls us to think about and steward the resources that we've been given. Right? And number seven, at the end of this, you'll have a chance to fill out a personal kind of giving pledge plan, and only you will see it. It's not something that you, you'll turn in. We'll put it, we'll kind of have an offering of it, but we're going to throw them away at the end of it. You can watch me after the service two weeks from now. I'll walk back to the trash can and throw all those in there. It's, it's a symbolic thing. We're going to have a chance for you to think about how you give and what you give and what you, your goals might be for the year and to write those down with your spouse or family, right? However you do it, however your setup is, right? To not put your name on it at all and to be able to just symbolically offer it to the Lord's table, right? It's just an act of devotion. It's not something for our finance team to look at. It's not something for anyone to see but yourself. But you'll have an opportunity to do that and it's just a good spiritual practice to, to do that for your own sake, and so keep that in mind and start to think about that as we go. Okay. Over the next three weeks, our goal is to get a biblical look at what God says about generosity, possessions, and finances. How does God call us to think about our money, but also other things, time, talent, treasure, and all that kind of stuff? Here's how the three weeks are going to shape up. Today, foundations, some basic principles about giving and generosity. Next week, we're going to look at practice. We'll get specific. How much should you give? And I'll give you a hint, and some of you might love this, some of you might groan at this. I am not a believer in the 10%, and I'll explain why. And two weeks from now, when I'm done with that sermon, I'll make appointments for people that want to come argue about it, because there's, there's always like two, and that's fine. That's great. Some of you are hard believers in 10%, and that's wonderful. But we're going to talk about why 10% is not a good Accurate measurements. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a tool that is more of an earthly principle, even though we see the tithe in Scripture at one point. Uh, we'll talk about why for today that's not necessarily the best way of approaching this idea of giving and stewardship, right? And number three, on the last week, we'll talk about blessings and curses. Why does giving matter? What does it do to you to be a generous person who gives? And what does it hinder in you for you to be a person that holds on and doesn't live life with an open hand. Right? What, are, what are some of the, the, the things that happen as a result of giving or not giving in our hearts, in our minds, and in the world around us? The blessings and the curses is what we'll call it. So foundations today, practice next week, blessings and curses third week, and then we won't talk about stewardship for like a really long time after that, I promise you. Deal? All right. I want to start today by looking at the, the very, very beginning of things. And I won't ask you to stand for this one because there's a passage later I'll ask you to stand for. And we're not Catholic and we don't do a lot of up-downs. So, first one is this. Right in the beginning of God's word in Genesis, there are some things that we see that are very helpful in our understanding about generosity. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And it was evening, and there was morning. The first day. Right. We talked about in our Advent series, series right, about the character of Jesus how the Father, the Son, and the Spirit always existed before the creation of the world. Before anything was made, Jesus and the Spirit and the Father were together in perfect Trinitarian unity. 
They, they functioned together. They completed one another. They needed nothing, right? And so we see that God was perfect within this trinity and didn't need a single thing, but yet he chose to create the world as a display of his glory. Get that. You and I are created as a display of God's glory. He's showing off. That's why people can say, when God made you, he was showing off. So if you look in the mirror and don't like what you see, think again. God, when he made you and I, was showing off. It's a glorious display of, of his love and his kindness and his creativity. So God made, not because he needed something. He wasn't lonely and filled the earth with people, so he had friends. Right? God doesn't need Facebook. Right? He made the world as a glorious display. And you and I are beings created by God, not from necessity, but out of love and the overflowing of it. And so here's the first principle. God does not need you. And by extension of that, God does not need your money. He doesn't need it. He has everything he needs. And by extension of that, so does the church, by the way. And so, since God doesn't need your money, neither does the church. SPC does not need your giving. That's why if anyone ever argues me about something in the church, and their line is, you should... If you knew what I give, I'm going to laugh you out of the room. Because we don't need it. The Lord has a thousand cattle on a thousand hills. The Lord has everything he needs, and by extension, so does the church that he created, loves, and equips. And the Lord will do with this church whatever he sees fit. He will raise it. He will lower it. He will destroy it. He will build it back up. He will have it be half the size. He will have it be ten times the size. He will provide whatever means are necessary to accomplish the purposes that he calls this church to. And you giving or not giving isn't going to make a dent of difference in that. If God wants something to happen at Stowe Presbyterian Church, he'll make it happen. And if you say, yeah, but I can't afford, he does not care. He'll make it happen. He'll, he'll have a million dollars show up on our doorstep tomorrow if that's what he wants for us and if he wants us to do something with it. And so we need to understand that, number one, giving isn't about need in the church. We're not called to give because the lights have to be kept on. Right? That's a benefit. We like lights. All of you are warm in here today right? because there's heat, because you tithed, and we can turn on the thermostat. But that's not why we give, and the Lord doesn't need it. If you gave less, we'd worship in the cold. Whoever showed up would show up, right? That's a really important thing to understand. And since God doesn't need your money, the church doesn't need it either. Everything the church needs to sustain itself, God will provide. Here's the second principle that we learn in Genesis. God owns everything, right? Money is a piece of paper or a bunch of ones and zeros in your, your Chase app, right? It, it's all owned by him. It's all made by him. Like, before any of that existed, God was, and all things were created by him and for us and for his glory. And so every single thing in this world is already owned by him. Do you think you have a 401k? You don't have a 401k. God has a 401k, and he's letting you play with it for a certain amount of time, right? So number one, God doesn't need your money. Number two, God already has your money. Everything that you are and everything that you have, God 
owns. And the idea that we have anything is a myth if you believe in God as the creator and sustainer of the universe, right? Back in the fall, we looked at Ecclesiastes, and one of the things we saw was that life is a vapor. The idea that you own stuff is just a myth. It doesn't do anything for you. Money doesn't create security for you. God creates security for you. Money is a vapor, smoke, myth, mist, here today and gone tomorrow. So one of the biggest lies that guides our society today is that your security is found in the money that you have. If you think that, go back to any other time in history. Let's look at 2008. Let's look at the late 20s, early 30s, and the 1900s, right? You can have all these times where people that had their security and money had it ripped out from underneath them. And by the way, you could save for 40 years and just get hit by a bus. Money doesn't provide you squat. God is the one that provides you security. What money gives you is the illusion of security, right? Really important to understand that. So if giving isn't about logistical need, God doesn't need your money, and, and it's and it's not about him actually getting anything because God already owns everything, well then there has to be some other reason for why we're called by God to give of ourselves generously, of our time, talent, and treasure, right? Well, why would it be if not for his benefit? Because every other entity that we give to, it's for their benefit. My wife runs a nonprofit. People give to them so because they need it. Right? They need the money so that they can operate and run and do things. The church doesn't function that way. God doesn't function that way. And so what is it? It's far more likely that God's call for generous living is actually about you and about I, not about God and other people's needs. Because he doesn't need you or your stuff. But how so? Let's look at one of the most famous passages about giving that we have in the New Testament. Um, and we'll stand for this one. It's in Matthew 19. Chapter 16 through 30, the story of the rich young man. Some uh, translations will say rich young ruler, right? depending on how you want to see the Greek there. Uh, let's read through this and let's see if we can look at some principles uh, together that might help guide the rest of our time. And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. And he said to him, which ones? And Jesus replied, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not wear, bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But the young man said to him, all of these I have kept, what do I still lack? And Jesus said, if you would be perfect, go sell all, of your, all that you possess and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. And when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, 
when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses and brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. It's the word of the Lord. Have a seat. A lot going on here. So this rich man comes to Jesus, asks about eternal life and how he might get it. And, and Jesus, his reply is kind of uh, a little interesting, right? The question is, it's weird to think of why the, the motivation of this question might come out. My guess is that this person was of great wealth and had acquired all these things, but he kind of started to realize, like, eternal life isn't something that you can just buy at a store, right? And so he's used to just buying whatever he wants, and eternal life is one of those things. So he goes to Jesus who's been teaching about it, and says, hey, how do I, how do I get this thing? Like, I almost wonder if the question is, what's, what's it going to take? Like, what, what, what number should I put on the check? Eternal life. Like, come on. Like, there's, there's no money that, come on, everybody has a number, right? Like, tell me what it is. And so Jesus' reply is, it sounds a little dismissive, but, but it really isn't. He talks about keeping the commandments. He says, why do you ask? Keep the commandments, and then he lists them, Right? We know that keeping commandments doesn't get you to heaven, right? We don't follow the law to get eternal life. But, but just humor Jesus for a second, right? Jesus here is speaking on a technical sense. How do you get eternal life? By being free of sin. By following all the commands of the Lord, which no one, by the way, can do, right? The rich man then claims, well, all of these I have kept since birth. And I love Jesus. He doesn't question him, even though, like, we all know he's totally full of it, right? Like, just, like, can you imagine if someone, like, was in our church and were like, well, how do, I, how do I get eternal life? Well, you have to live a sin-free life. That's why we need Jesus. And they were like, well, I have lived a sin-free life. <laughs> okay, right? Did you lie today? You know, you do all those kind of gamut questions, right? Well, then you're not sin-free. Did you ever talk back to your mom and dad? Not sin-free. All that kind of good stuff. Jesus, though... I love this. He just assumes the guy's right. Like, he doesn't waste any time on the argument whatsoever because it's a totally moot point for Jesus. So Jesus says, great, you've done all these things. So Jesus cuts to his heart and he says this. You're in. Just go sell all the things you have. Right? Give, give them away. Sell them. Give the money away. Just get rid of all the stuff that, that you have. And then you're, you're in. Come, come follow me. Come be with me. And you'll have, by the way, I promise you, treasures in heaven where that eternal life rests. So if you get rid of all your stuff, Jesus himself looks him right in the eye and says, come follow me, you'll have eternal life and all the treasures in heaven that you could imagine. Pretty good deal, right? But what we see is that the man goes away sad. He can't do it. He can't part with the earthly treasure instead of receiving the heavenly treasure. He's not able to make that exchange in his mind and in his heart. And so after the, the thing ends, and this isn't a parable. This is, you know, the rich man was real, a real person. This interaction with Jesus really happened. The guy goes away sad because he realizes that that's his heart just is holding on to that stuff. He can't, he can't give, give it away. And so after he leaves, Jesus uses it as a teachable moment with his disciples. And he looks at an object lesson. He says, look, it's, it's really hard for rich people to get into heaven. They're kind of like, okay. He says, well, let me, let me put it bluntly. Um, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a, of a little needle than it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. 
Now, we know that this isn't actually about rich people, right? If your net worth is over a certain amount, it's not like there's like a, a buzzer at the door of heaven that you just get booted, right? That's not how it works. It's not about actual material richness, right? But Jesus uses this to tell them, like, listen, wealth is an incredible inhibitor towards seeing and receiving the kingdom of God. And so then the disciples freak out. Well, who could possibly get in? We're all rich by some definition, right? What the Gallup poll say, right? Some people think 30K is rich. So can they not get in either? What's our hope then? He says, well, with man, this can't happen. But with God, all things are possible. Man and his wealth and his possessions, no matter how much you amass, no matter how much you have, no matter how much you hoard, no matter how much you save, Number three principle, our money and our possessions do not secure our future. They just simply don't. Since God owns everything, God controls your destiny. He is the one in the driver's seat. Even if you don't follow him and don't care, he's still in the driver's seat. God is the one who will determine what you have, what you don't have in this life and in the next. It's up to him, not up to you. You can save all you want. When you save in your 401ks and you have your hundreds of thousands of dollars tucked away, what, what the Lord sees is a little kid saving 13 cents and thinking they can buy a house with it. But the realtor will just laugh you out of the room. I don't care how much you have. It's not enough. It won't be. Right? You could be gone by the end of the day. What good is all that to you? There's no security in that. So our savings account won't help us with eternal affairs, but God will. With man, you cannot get in. But with God, this is possible. Right? So finally, the disciples then ask about their own fate. Well, we, we've actually done the thing that the rich young ruler couldn't do. Like, we, we, we left. You told us, pick up, pick up, leave your family, and come follow me. And they, they did that, right? The fishermen, the disciples dropped their nets right where they were. They left their boats probably floating in the water, and they walked and just started walking with Jesus. They, they literally did the thing that Jesus asked the rich young ruler to do. And so this isn't an arrogant question. They're not pompous, but they're just asking. They're, like, thinking to themselves, listen, they just promised this rich guy that if he just sold all his stuff and walked away, that he would have, like, eternal life and treasure. Like, we actually sold our stuff and walked away. So they just say, hey, Jesus, like, what, what do we have as a result of that? What, what is it that we get? Right? And he answers them first directly to the disciples. You, when I sit on the throne, also will sit on the throne. Be twelve thrones, and you'll sit on them, and you'll judge the nations alongside of me. Right? You'll, you'll have what I have. You'll be a child of God the way I am a child of God. You will judge the world the way I judge the world. You will have the authority to rule and to reign as I have the authority to rule and to reign. And then for all of those who give up any of those things, right? Father, mother, brother, sister, land, possessions, all of these things. What, will he, what does he promise? Everyone. They'll get a hundredfold what they left in this earthly life and eternal life. So by dropping what you have in this world... You gain it a hundredfold in the next. Right? There is a place prepared for you in heaven. And it is based on the generosity that you provide in this life. Right? Jesus makes that really, really clear. 
But there's this promise that we get. He finishes by saying that many will be fir- many that are first will be last, and many that are last will be first. And this is a weird kind of thing to end with. So why would Jesus kind of drive that home at the end there? And all he's saying is, look, the people are going to get what they actually want in their hearts. Right? Jesus is saying, look, many of those who are first won't be able to leave it behind, and they'll end up last. And many of those who are last, seemingly, will choose to give everything, what little they do have up, and they'll follow me, and they'll end up first, right? This is the heart of God's call to a generous life, right? That's a good one. Um, one of the things that's important to understand is that um, hell and heaven, are, are, you know, they're, they're less physical destinations or places than they are realities, Hell is really nothing more than the absence of God, right? And God is about giving us the desire of our hearts. And so in your heart, if you want to desire things and not desire God instead of those things, right, then really, hell is just God giving you what you want. It's less of a casting you away and more of a, you don't, you don't want my presence? You want to take the created rather than the creator? Okay, here it is. You can have a life that is entirely devoid of my presence. It's not what you think it is, right? But the rich young ruler, you might feel bad for him. Maybe he just didn't understand. Maybe he didn't know. But the reality is this. That rich young ruler just got exactly what he asked for. He had an offer to have the presence of God, to be with him for eternity, with treasure that he couldn't imagine. And he couldn't do it. He rejected it. And he walked away. That's what he means by those who think they're first will end up last, and and many of those who are last are going to end up first. Now, to get to the heart of all of this, we have to kind of put all of these principles and and, and a fourth one together and try to see how this all relates. So let's just recap. Principle one, God doesn't need your giving. Principle two, he already owns all of your giving anyway. And principle three, your money and possessions won't save you, right? There's a a fourth principle that'll help us as well. And this is important to understand as we talk about giving. Um, Throughout scripture, one of the things you see over and over and over again is that God, above everything else, is a giver and not a taker. Right? Like, we think of like, well, God God just wants my money. Like, what about God and how he's lived and how he functions in scripture somehow says to us that, that, that he's in any way about selfish gain, right? Everything we know about God is that he is, he is a giver by nature. God gives of himself for his people, right? We're talking about the father who sent his son as a sacrifice lamb to die in order to secure us eternal relationship with him. Like that's how much of a giver he is. How many of you have sacrificed your firstborn child? For, like, a person that you love. Hope. If you did, you're not going to put your hand up. So, like, you know, just keep that to yourself and don't tell any of us. And just please stop coming here. Um, if that's you. We love you, but we want to love you from, like, another state away. Right? But no one does it. That's insane. That's how much of a giver by nature God is. God isn't a taker. He's a giver. He's in the business of giving, of caring, of providing, of loving his children. He sent his own son to give himself up for us so that we might have life. He gives us new life. 
And when you put all of this together, we see something that's foundational to our giving. God's call for us to give, to be generous with our possessions, our time, our talent, and yes, our treasure is designed so that ultimately we might receive something. Our giving helps us receive. That's, this is why money isn't the root of all evil. Scripture doesn't say that. What does it say? The love of money is the root of all evil. The money we have is owned by God and given to us in order that we might use it as a tool to shape our spiritual development. Giving shapes our hearts and our minds. This is really important. There ought to be no legalism in giving. And we'll talk about that next week when we look at how much we should give and why we should give the amount that we should give and all those kinds of things. We'll get into the nitty-gritty of it a little more. But giving is not a legalistic thing. God demands that you give for solely your own benefit. And then he takes what you give and he uses it for the kingdom as a beautiful bonus. But he doesn't need it. You give it for your own benefit, not for the benefit of others. He knows that sin causes you to worship the created rather than the creator, right? And he knows that money is one of the biggest things that we like to idolize and clutch to, right? It's the biggest idol in the world and has been pretty much forever, right? We idolize money. We put our faith in it. We put our trust in it. We put our security in it. And God asks us to give because it forces us, when we give sacrificially, to love him more than the money that he already owns anyway. Giving isn't so the lights can stay on at Stowe Presbyterian Church. Giving is to teach you and draw you closer to God, your provider, your father, your Abba. He wants to know you. He wants you to know him. He wants you to trust him. He wants you to put yourself in a position of need where he can fill that need and be the giver. You literally are called to give so that God can give to you. That's what it's all about. Giving shapes our hearts so that we might love God more than this world. And God is ultimately in the business of giving us our heart's desires. You know, a Andy Stanley is good for a little bit more than a colonoscopy joke. Um, there's, there's something else. This was like years and years ago. He was being interviewed. I think it was like 2014 or 15. He was giving an interview, and he said this. This is, this is profound. Any fear associated with giving to God's kingdom is irrational. It's on par with a farmer who, out of fear of losing his seed, refuses to plant his fields. When we hold on to what the Lord has given us in order to shape us into people that are generous and after his own heart, it's like holding seed because you're worried about it. It's not any use. It's not put into the hands of the one who knows what to do with it. You're just hoarding it until your time runs out. And then what? Honestly, then what? Right? We're, when we hold on to our money, our talent, we're grabbing something that's not ours to begin with, it can't be brought with us in the end, and it provides no actual comfort or security to us. Where's that going to be when you're on your last breath? Like picture actually being on your last breath and reflect back Maybe you've got still half your IRA balance left. What's your comfort? I guess my kids can use it. Okay. They'll be on their last dying breath someday too. It's just a cycle that ends over and over again. If that's how you view your stuff, we got some work to do. When we live generously, 
We allow God to manage what's already his. And we trust ourselves into his care, the one who can actually care for us, right? Next week, we're going to look at some specifics. We're going to look at some biblical principles about the practice of giving. We're going to talk about how much you should give. Hint, it's not necessarily 10%, right? And we're going to look at how this generous mindset goes so far beyond tithes and money, right? So please come back, right? My prayer is that you will just continue to come back and engage with this. My prayer is that if you're tired of giving sermons, trust me, I'm with you. My prayer is that this wouldn't just be another look at tithing, but that we might examine a call to a generous life on its own merits with fresh eyes as if we've never talked about it before. I pray that we might take the next few weeks to evaluate our own generosity and how we think about our money. And we pray that as, as generous and as giving as you'd like to be, what might change look like for you? What might growth in generosity and your giving look like in your own heart and in your own mind, right? Let this be an exercise of spiritual growth because make no mistake about it, giving isn't an administrative thing. It's a spiritual thing. It's a thing that shapes your heart and your mind for Christ. And he calls us to it, to give painfully, sacrificially, because he knows that our heart follows our wallet. Because sin is real. If you want to know where your heart is, just look at your budget. It'll tell you everything you need to know. Believe me. Right? So my prayer is that he wants to see you blessed with a treasure that you can't even imagine. He doesn't want your money. He wants you. He wants your heart. He wants your life and everything that comes with it. Believe me when I say this to you. I don't care how good you are with finances. God is a better steward of your resources than you are. Right? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. Lord, we are a people that are lost. We, we so often walk in darkness without even knowing it. Lord, we, we live our lives in ways that are blind to your truth and your realities and the way that you have set the kingdom of God to work. And Lord, you love us. And you care for us. And so you call us unto yourself. And you do it by calling us to do the thing which most pains us to do. To open our bank accounts. Because when we can do that, we can do most other things. And you know that about us. Lord, we praise you that you are a God who intimately knows our hearts. Our weaknesses, our strengths, our downfalls. That you know how to cut to the chase. Lord, we praise you for your wisdom and how you engaged with the rich young ruler Lord, you didn't question his righteousness, but you just cut straight to the heart because you knew him better than he knew himself. You know us better than we know ourselves. We pray that over these next two more weeks that you would guide us, that you would shape us, that regardless of what we're putting in the offering plate today, Lord, that you would just change our hearts and shape us into the people you want us to be so that we can have you. And we pray that regardless of what happens with budgets and income and all those kinds of things, we would pray that we would be a people who more and more would be shaped after your heart, that you would grab it, that you would mold it, that we would become more and more like you, and that you would use whatever means to do that. Boldly pray in your name, and all his people together said, Amen. Amen.